You know, there are all kinds of platform addresses that I work on, ones that take a lot of research and reading, ones that are more pastoral about something we experience in our lives, ones that are a chance for me to share something that I've already thought a lot about, something I'm excited to bring to you, but that I've been working on for a while. On busy weekends, I am sometimes smart enough to plan out one of those platform addresses, one of the ones sharing something I've thought about for a long time that I feel really confident in. <clears throat> this is a really busy weekend for me. And so I'm speaking about America's economic system, the injustice found in that system, and what we can do about it. <laughs> so that was really great planning. Uh, I want to say right at the start that I am indebted to Perry Bider and Lindsay Luke, both of whom have economic backgrounds and both of whom perhaps guessed that I might have a little bit of um, thinking to do before I was prepared to present this platform and who offered to think that through with me. Lindsay actually drew some graphs for me, which was wonderful. There are plenty of other economists here this morning, I know, and you can all talk to me during coffee hour about everything that I got wrong in my, uh, in my address. Actually, even those of you who are not economists have been thinking about this kind of thing, I think. There's an uh, email listserv for members called the West Exchange, and every once in a while, Articles will make the rounds of the exchange and get all sorts of good responses. And not long ago, a Slate series made the rounds of the exchange, a series, 10-part series called The United States of Inequality by Slate senior writer Timothy Noah. And so that is where I turned, along with toward Lindsay and Perry, to understand a little bit more the American economic system, never having actually had a class in economics, although Lindsay assured me that that probably wouldn't really make much difference. Um, <laughs> so the, the United States of Inequality is a series that I recommend to you. It speaks about income inequality in America, and specifically about two, or if you really look at it, three periods of differing equality in American income. First, Timothy Noah speaks about the Great Compression, the time from 1940 to 1979, so just toward the end of World War II until the late 70s, when income inequality, the gap between incomes in America was actually compressing or getting smaller. People's incomes were getting closer together, although still obviously with some divergence. Then in 1979, Noah argues, we can see statistically what's called the Great Divergence from 1979 until present as income inequality grows in America. And he actually divides that into two categories, 1979 to 1994, when you see a divergence of incomes, and then 1994 to 2008, which I think is the last year data was gathered, when that inequality gets even worse, especially at the very tippy top of the, uh, of the chart. One of the quotes that was uh, startling to me was that from 1980 to 2005, so during that great divergence, more than 80% of the total increase in Americans' income, so the income in total in the country that was increased in that time, went to that top 1% of folks. 
Timothy Noah wrote at the very beginning of this series, and I'll quote him, all my life I've heard Latin America described as a failed society because of its grotesque maldistribution of wealth. Peasants in rags beg for food outside the high walls of opulent villas and so on. He goes on, but according to the Central Intelligence Agency, whose patriotism I hesitate to question, income distribution in the United States is more unequal than in Guyana, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, and roughly on par with Uruguay, Argentina, and Ecuador. Income inequality is actually declining in Latin America, even as it continues to increase in the United States." End quote. He goes on to say that one of the reasons that we look different than, the, than Latin American societies is that we have more space, and so the beggars aren't right outside the villas. Inequality, as I said, gets more impressive as you go up to the tippy-tippy top. The top 0.1%, such a small number, you can barely even imagine it, isn't it? 0.1% of the country. Their income has actually quadrupled during the Great Divergence, that time from 1979 to the present. And Timothy Noah divides people into three categories up in that top tier. The sort of rich, these are his, his labels, the sort of rich, the rich, and the stinking rich. I think that's that top 0.1%. Those are folks whose wealth I find actually difficult to comprehend. You know, people who are like, is, is billion really a word that applies to a person? This seems to ha it does, yes, yeah. <laughs> this seems to partly have to do with CEO and top executive pay, especially in financial and corporate sectors. Actually, the whole series goes through a number of possible factors that led to this income inequality, some of which Timothy Noah thinks are more important than others, and he does a kind of breakout of what those factors might be. He says, and I'm, and I'm using some of his language here and then some of my own for explanation. Race and gender seem to be responsible for none of the income inequality. They don't track in quite that way. And single parenthood or the change of the family is responsible for virtually none of it. Immigration, he thinks, and he assigns rough percentages here, is responsible for about 5% of what's happened with in income inequality since 1979. Computers as a transformative technology is responsible, he decides in the end, for none of it. That's one theory that as computerization and technology increased, we lost jobs to computers. He doesn't think so. Tax policy is responsible for 5%. Now we get into some of the bigger numbers. The decline of labor, he says, is responsible for 20%. Unions actually tend to even out wages among members of the unions, leading to more equality. And along with the decline of labor has been a stagnation of the minimum wage over various periods in our history in the last 20 or 30 years. International trade is responsible, he thinks, for about 10% of the uh, income inequality. Wall Street and corporate boards, and these are his words, pampering of the stinking rich is responsible for 30%. And then, this was really interesting to me, various failures in our education system are responsible for 30%. Our children, when they graduate from high school, are no longer ready for many of the jobs and so need to go on to college in order to get up to a higher wage level <clears throat> than they did perhaps 40 or 50 years ago when our high school education was preparing people well for jobs that were at a mid-wage level. Here is how he sums up the factors. Quote, 
Most of these factors reflect at least in part things the federal government did or failed to do. Immigration is regulated, at least in theory, by the federal government. Tax policy is determined by the federal government. The decline of labor is in large part the doing of the federal government. Trade levels are regulated by the federal government. Government rules concerning finance and executive compensation help determine the quantity of cash that the stinking rich take home. It was quite a colorful language in there. Education is affected by government at the local, state, and increasingly federal levels. In a broad sense, then, we all created the great divergence because in a democracy, the government is us." End quote. There was another startling statistic, not from this particular series, but from another uh, a blogger, actually, on alternet.org that Phil Maggio found and pointed out to the West Exchange when it was talking about income inequality. Dave Johnson wrote that the top 1% took in 23.5% of all of the country's income in 2007. For comparison, in 1979, remember that's the year when the Great Divergence is supposed to have started, that top 1% took in 8.9%. So that's a, a big difference in about 30 years. The National Leaders Council, that's the group of ethical culture clergy in the country, has actually been grappling with and trying to understand economic justice as our social justice issue this year. And we plan to continue with it next year, partly because we didn't feel we quite solved it <clears throat> yet. Some of the conversations at those National Leaders Council meetings have been about different economic systems how we might be able to change America's economic system, which is an idea so big that I can't even get my arms around it. To me, changing entirely the system that we participate in doesn't seem to be reasonable in any kind of meaningful way. Lindsay, when I spoke with her, shared a phrase that's similar to something Winston Churchill said about democracy, that capitalism may be a terrible system, it just happens to beat whatever is in second place. And Perry Bider brought to me an image that was helpful in thinking about our economic system, that we are riding on a tiger. We can't get off the tiger, and so instead we have to figure out how to harness it. Now, of course, that's if we want to harness the tiger, if we think that there's something wrong with the growing income inequality in America. Timothy Noah, the author of that Slate series, quotes Alan Greenspan speaking in 2005 about income inequality. Quote, this is not the type of thing which a democratic society, a capitalist democratic society, can really accept without addressing. Noah quoted Greenspan, I think, partly because Greenspan is not usually identified as a radical, <laughs> a sort of class warfare radical, but rather as someone who's relatively conservative and someone who has identified this as no longer acceptable. Perry Bider wrote again on the West Exchange, it's a, which I've been mining for this particular platform, poverty is bad, talking about the difference between poverty and income inequality, that poverty is bad even with perfect equality because it means that people aren't able to meet their basic needs for food, clothing, shelter, medical care, and the like. Inequality, he went on to say, is bad even if the poorest have a high standard of living in some objective sense because it means that some people will face difficulty in participating fully in the mainstream of society. The question, I think, is about our attitude, our thought, what we find to be morally acceptable, what amount of income inequality is okay. 
I am fine with some amount of income inequality. I pursued an advanced educational degree and I work in a field where I make more money than I did before I had that advanced degree and before the training that I received. But it seems to me that there is a line where we have moved away from that hope for some equality between the super rich and those at the bottom. I can only begin to understand some of what we would do to harness that tiger that we are riding on to work with the system in some way. We need to be aware though, I think, of what this economic system is intended to create, what it is that we produce with our capitalist system. Not justice, not equality, it's not intended to create those things. It produces wealth. If we want then to get at some of those other things, if we want more justice, more equality, if we want a better distribution of that wealth, we have to either work with the system or work with another system, with the political system in America. And some would argue, of course, that we should leave the economic system alone entirely. It produces lots of good things, the American economic system. Wealth is one of them, entrepreneurship is another. And concentrate instead on creating separate safety net pieces, on creating equality in other ways. Timothy Noah describes a solution from his colleague at Slate, Mickey Kaus, who wrote in his book, The End of Equality, that income, and I'm quoting Timothy Noah, that income inequality was the inevitable outgrowth of ever more ruthlessly efficient markets and that government attempts to reverse it were certain to fail. Kaus urges liberals to combat social inequality by nurturing egalitarian civic institutions, parks, schools, libraries, museums, and by creating some new ones, like national health care, national service, a revived WPA, that remove many of life's most important activities from the money sphere altogether, end quote. Timothy Noel goes on to say that this idea that the answer lies entirely outside the economic system has been disputed to some degree now, and that there probably do need to be regulations on the economic system specifically, although those regulations will still be approached through the political system. Some of those regulations I could imagine might be around ratios of top wage earners and bottom wage earners within a company. I see as I write this, I've actually put in a typo of top wage earners and bottom rage earners. <laughs> sort of a <clears throat> Freudian slip as I write. So ratios between, between top and bottom wage earners within a company. Taxation, too, I think, is a key way to fulfill our social obligation, to work with our economic system. In 2005, when I was serving at the River Road UU congregation, Scott Alexander preached about the importance of taxation to fulfill our social contract in America. He wrote, the price that is to be paid out there in the economic life of our nation for compassionate care and concern for all of American citizens will come with very real economic costs and will by logic require increased taxation for most Americans and at least a short-term reduction in the standard of living enjoyed by most of us out here in the affluent suburbs. River Road is in Bethesda. We who are guided by the moral imperative to protect and defend the inherent worth and dignity of every person will be required to share some of our obvious economic abundance with others less privileged, period. The good society, the just society, the compassionate society, the humane society has real costs, 
Taxes collected by governments at all levels, if wisely and compassionately spent, are the glue of the good society, the capital of the social contract, and the currency that enriches the soul of the nation. So it seems to me that there is a call, perhaps, for regulations, for rules of play, for environmental restrictions on companies. All good games have boundaries and rules, ways of leveling the playing field and keeping us playing in the same way. And my guess is that the economic system is no different. Luckily, it's not really for me to figure out all of these answers. I cling to the Martin Luther King quote that preachers are supposed to say that justice must roll down like water while politicians can figure out the plumbing. I imagine that there are a number of people here today that could figure out the plumbing a lot better than I could. We do, though, have a role as a religious community, I think. Ethical culture was created in 1876, was founded both as a response to traditional religion that no longer seemed to be speaking to a segment of the population, and also as a response to materialism to the kind of total secularization that no longer valued human beings, but valued instead only the accumulation of greater and greater wealth. We talked about Felix Adler's three spiritual pains earlier this month, and I promised that today we would return to the third one, the pain of the divided conscience, his idea that the moral guidelines that we follow in our private lives don't extend to our public lives, to our business lives. Adler was deeply concerned with American society's overall contract and ethical grounding. He wrote, the reconstruction of the moral ideal is indispensable as a basis for the reconstruction of society. What I think we are called to do as a religious community is to find a way to say what we feel is appropriate, what we feel is ethical, what level of wealth and what disparity of wealth is acceptable to us in society. We can say if we think taxes are good and that taxes on the super, super rich are even better. We pay for what we value, both in our own lives and in society, through our taxes, through our nonprofit contributions, our contributions to this community as well. I applaud those who have benefited wildly in today's economy, those top few. I saw just recently in, a, in an article or a little tidbit somewhere that Bill Gates has given up his position as the richest man in the world. He is now third because of the amount of wealth, well, Right, he's still third, but because of the amount of wealth that he has chosen to give, in, to give away. Bill Gates and Warren Buffett both are people who have benefited in ways I can only begin to imagine. Their, their wealth is that sort of incomprehensible, larger than a small country kind of wealth, and both have made significant commitments to give away large portions of that wealth before they die. When I was in seminary at a Methodist seminary here in DC, we talked frequently about what John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, said about money. He encouraged everyone to earn all you can, save all you can, and give away all you can. 
a kind of nice affirmation of the positive role of money in our lives and in our societies. I think, too, we have a place as a religious community to be able to speak to the value of wealth and material abundance in our own society and in our own lives. There are a number of studies about how happiness rates level off rather early in the income climb, although I will say that in researching this and trying to find a number, I found both that it levels off at about the amount that an average Cuban makes in, in Cuba and that it levels off at $75,000. And I don't think that they're the same thing. So <laughs> maybe a little bit more research is necessary there. There is, however, some place to acknowledge that material wealth doesn't, in fact, buy happiness, at least when we get to the point where our basic needs are met and we're able to engage in society in a way that we find fulfilling. As a religious community that puts relationship and connection as central, we can, we can state that importance. We can acknowledge the importance of relationship in our lives. We can also, I think, acknowledge the worth of every individual, whatever their economic value in society. I quote again Felix Adler from The Reconstruction of the Spiritual Ideal, that book from which his spiritual pains are taken. In capitalistic society, he wrote, the function of wealth accumulation dominates. Some one function hitherto has always been ranked above the rest, and the social groups have been ranked hierarchically accordingly. The ethical problem, the real problem, for instance, of what we call democracy, is to place all functions on a level with respect. This is actually printed over another printing. It's quite interesting to try to get through here. To place all functions on a level with respect to the worth of the, I remember it, to the worth of the individuals who exercise them and to find that worth in which this equality may be realized not despite the inequalities, but by their interaction. In other words, we can acknowledge the worth of each person regardless of where they fall on that chart, even as our society goes from compression to divergence, as inequality grows and people are in different places, we have a place to be able to call out the worth of each person no matter where they belong on that chart. We can acknowledge this worth in the world and in our own community, too. This evening is our community dinner, as you probably know, when our members gather to celebrate and to make financial commitments to Wes. Religious liberals are sometimes uncomfortable talking about money perhaps uncomfortable recognizing differences in our individual financial situations within the community. But I wonder what would happen if instead we celebrated the gifts that each one of us can bring to this community. Not the amounts of those gifts, but what the gifts mean to the individual, and therefore their meaning to the community. We have this year a tool we introduced last year at our community dinner, a fair share giving tool that helps our members to figure out what would be a fair share gift, a gift that I would describe as both doable within your financial situation and generous for you.
It's a chart that shows a series of percentages raising, ranging from 2 to 10 percent along the top and then various income levels along the side. And the idea behind this tool is that any gift on the chart is an incredibly generous gift, a leadership gift in our community. It's not about the amount of the gift that the person can bring, it's about the giving, about the way it relates to that individual and their situation. And it allows us then to celebrate leadership givers who may be giving at wildly different levels, but each one at a level that for their financial situation is generous. Recognizing those gifts is a way, I think, to celebrate people wherever they are on that income spectrum. Celebrate their ability to be leaders in giving. I want to honor, too, I saw the other day a bumper sticker, which I've seen in a number of places, on cars, obviously, because it's a bumper sticker. Usually, it's one I see on sort of old, beat-up cars, and it says, don't let the car fool you, my treasure is in heaven. It's a, a Christian bumper sticker about where people place our values, whether it's here on earth or elsewhere. Well, the other day as I was driving along 16th Street, I saw it on a really nice Mercedes-Benz. <laughs> don't let the car fool you, my treasure is in heaven. And I thought, I like it there, too. You know, the car, it's a nice car. The person has worked hard, perhaps, to be able to afford it and to drive it and enjoy it. And they're still making a statement about where their values lie. We might not say exactly that our treasure is in heaven, but we can say our treasure is somewhere other than our car, no matter what kind of car we drive. My husband and I have used that fair share tool for our own giving last year and will use it again this year. We are lucky, I think we probably are up toward the top of that income inequality chart. And actually the Slate series has a really fun, if you like, little quizzes way to put in your income and your zip code and see where you fit in your area. We have one child and another on the way, and so we factor our child care costs into our income. We are also lucky right now to both be employed. And so we find ourselves somewhere in the middle of that fair, fair share chart in what we are able to give to Wes. Our income might change in coming years. As we look at the federal government shutdown, we wonder if it might change in the coming week. <laughs> Our child care needs will surely change. Our ability to give may increase or decrease as the years continue. But we know that our gift will be able to stay somewhere on that chart and that we will be able to feel proud and generous of that gift. We are not going to solve the problem of economic inequality anytime soon although I'd love to have conversations with those of you who have ideas about how we can move from that great divergence toward a little bit more great compression. We can, though, acknowledge the worth of every person. Those of us who, like me, are privileged to be up near the top of the chart can figure out how to give away all we can. We can, as a community, be a place where the amount is not as important as the idea behind giving. 
where our giving itself is wrapped up in economic justice in a way to celebrate every gift and what it means to the person who's giving it. This is a way, I think, of engaging with money that calls on our ethics, not just our pocketbooks. And of course, what we spend it on here at West is the opposite of American materialism. We spend it on relationship and on reaching out to our neighborhood and on caring for each other, learning how to be more ethical, a place where we can meet those who are different from us and build relationships with them instead of walking away, a place to raise our children and see our teens grow, a place to celebrate, to honor the worth of every single person. This is a kind of abundance, I think, that the economic system cannot create. And it is also a kind of abundance that we can share equally among each other. As we struggle with how to get our arms around what might be wrong with America, as we struggle with what regulations do make sense and what would be helpful and useful, what inequality we are comfortable with, all that time we can be honoring each other's worth in this community and in the wider world. We can use the wealth that we have to create the abundance that we all deserve.